So here we are, nearing the end of 2020 in this year, and, and so much has changed. It's changed the way we socialised, it's changed the way we connect, both in person and also digitally. And some of those things, of course, will resettle, and some of them will evolve and they won't go back to the way they were before. But actually, in my mind at least, one of the key things that has really been brought into sharp focus this year is that we are not in control of everything around us. This is Rachel Skinner, and in 2020, she became the 156th president of the Institution of Civil Engineers in the UK. This is her inaugural address. Rachel is the youngest person and the second woman ever to hold the presidency. And in fact, it's brought certain things into renewed focus. And, and one of those, certainly in my mind, and I'm sure in an awful lot of yours, is the fact that we absolutely have to take this opportunity to act effectively, efficiently and consistently on climate change. And despite the immediate shock of the pandemic, for her, engineering faces one true challenge. Because through all of the chaos, all of the uncertainty, all of the upheaval of this year so far, the urgent need to act and to bring this issue into the genuine mainstream has stood firm throughout. And perhaps actually, it feels like it might have strengthened. And that's because even in the first few weeks of the impact of the pandemic in different places around the world, within days and certainly within weeks, an awful lot of us, particularly those living in cities, could already feel the impact in terms of cleaner air. For others around the world, it would have been perhaps the impact of a newfound peace and quiet. We could actually feel that shift all around us. And perhaps for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, and I suspect in most, most of yours, we could actually see our collective impact on the world around us through its unexpected absence. And of course, COVID has also done one other thing for all of us. It's given us, in my view, an enormous boost in terms of our level of confidence in our ability to change fast when we have to. For her presidential theme, Rachel chose net zero carbon. And actually, in a funny way, the decision was actually cemented for me about two years ago, probably now, by my eldest daughter, Izzy. She's 13 now, but she was then 11. And there was a day when she came home from school in tears. And I thought, you know, maybe something had happened at school or, or perhaps she'd forgotten to do some homework or something like that. But no, the reason she was so upset is because a classmate of hers had presented to all of them on climate change. And she came home, as I say, in floods of tears, very, very genuinely upset. And she just had one question for me. And she, she basically said, why wasn't I doing anything about it? And it was quite a moment, really, because she stopped me completely in my tracks that evening. And she was well within her rights, of course, to ask the question. But it was probably the first time in her relatively short life that she'd actually made me stop and really think before I started to answer with the usual platitudes and sort of trying to calm her down and so on. Because she was right. She was completely right. We weren't doing enough and we still aren't doing enough. So at that point, actually, it was a relatively easy decision because, as I say, I was keen on picking a singular theme. And, and in fact, in terms of homing in on something that is probably the biggest, most urgent, most complex threat to our future, this simply had to be it. 
Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we have partnered with Kelpray, a leading UK specialist construction and engineering business, to look at concrete and some of the innovations that just might tip the balance in the climate struggle. Cement, a component of most modern concrete, is thought to contribute around 8% of global carbon emissions. Concrete is the fundamental construction material. Skyscrapers, roads, bridges, tunnels. Even when you cannot see the grey stuff, it underpins every major structure. It's essential. And according to German data analysis company Statista, the world produced 4.2 billion tonnes of cement last year, up from 1.6 billion tonnes in 2000. This is largely due to a boom in building infrastructure in the developing world. If we could reduce the carbon cost of producing concrete, even by a little bit, the overall effect would be astonishing. And it's one of those things that engineers have in their power. In this episode, we will learn about some not-so-new technology that could make a significant contribution to carbon emissions. It is here, it is ready, and all it needs is for major projects to ask, why shouldn't I, instead of, why should I? So, let's see what you think. I have two questions for you. First, do you agree with me? Is there an urgent need for us to change? An urgent need for us to make sure that we are doing no more harm and that we're helping to put right the harm of the past? And secondly, what are you going to do? Before we get into what is new... Excuse me, it actually isn't new tech exactly. Right. Before we get into the returning technology and the ideas that are currently causing a buzz in the concrete sector, we should really dive into what concrete is and why what we are currently doing is causing a problem. Here is Tim Lohman, director of the Wentworth House Partnership. It is a contractor's engineer support business in the UK. So they give contractors advice on bids for work, technical support for ongoing projects, and some design work. He is going to give us a rundown on concrete, what it's made of, and how it works. How long have you got? <laughs> uh, the, right, com uh, concrete is a mix of uh, a binder, a lubricant, and uh, a filler, an aggregate. Historically, what we call concrete has been made up with a binder based on ordinary Portland cement, a lubricant as water, and the, the filler material has been a dredged or mined aggregate. This has been around as a technology since Roman times. The production of the cementitious material in Roman times was, was lime and uh, naturally occurring volcanic ash. They're combined in an alkaline-rich environment and they form a binder that will both go off underwater and set hard and durable. In the 18, 19th century, Portland cement was developed, which is an artificial binder material and is the development of the lime-making process. To make Portland cement, you basically mix mined limestone with a clay material and you cook them. And the process of cooking them drives off large amounts of carbon dioxide and is also energy intensive. That's where the carbon comes in. It is almost a tonne of carbon for a tonne of cement. These are round numbers, but it is around that figure. 
This concrete mix can also be varied to give us different properties, which serve as different engineering purposes. For example, you might want a faster curing concrete for an awkward location, or you might need a more durable concrete for a critical structure, but where curing time is less of an issue. When we make concrete, the constituents of the binder and to the aggregate are pretty much one part binder to, to five parts aggregate, and we can vary that to give us different constituents. We can also vary the, the relationship between the lubricant and the uh, binder, and that will vary strength and durability issues. One of the challenges we get with concrete is that it's susceptible to all sorts of uh, chemical reactions that whilst don't, they don't affect it in the short term, they do affect it over the long term, so we have durability issues that concern concrete. Most of these are environmental and some come from what we do to them. So the big nasties in concrete are issues of alkalis, free alkalis reacting with the aggregates in the concrete. We have issues with calcium, so with, with chlorides from the road de-icing salts getting into the matrix and, and uh, attacking the reinforcement through. Affecting the chemistry of the concrete, we have issues with carbonation from carbon dioxide in the air affecting the alkalinity of the concrete. We have attack from sulfates in the ground. We have attack from aggressive groundwater. All of these manifest themselves over time. And a lot of them are associated with the presence of the Portland cement chemistry within the matrix. In terms of strengths, we can make concrete from anything from almost no strength, which is probably harder than it sounds, to concrete of strength, regular strengths in excess of 75, 80 megapascals, which is about a third that of steel, of that order, a quarter that of steel. With addition of special materials, we can get flexural strengths very, very high. But in order of magnitude, the compressive strength of concrete is about a tenth that of steel, and the stiffness is about a tenth that of steel. But the material is cheaper, much, much cheaper. So the challenge with the carbon content is in the ordinary Portland cement. The rest of the constituents provide very little of the overall carbon within a cubic metre of concrete. Ordinary Portland cement is the problem, and ordinary Portland cement is what we might have found a way to remove. The start of this is the move towards performance-based specifications. The construction industry has been trying to advocate for these for years now, and many clients have historically clung to prescriptive specifications that demand certain inputs or constituent parts, regardless of improvements that might be garnered from other approaches. A conservatism that has been reinforced by some of the largest asset owners around, including Transport for London, but this is changing. We're trying to see more of it, and it depends really on who's specifying. We see a lot of legacy specifications where clauses stay in specifications and they're not, not sure why they're there. They were just in the previous iteration. So for example, the, the, a bugbear of mine is concrete cube testing. It's not been a requirement that we do concrete cube testing on sites for years. And yet there is still in most specifications a requirement to do cube tests. And yet, if you look, if you really interrogate it, very few cubes are ever taken with a certificate of compliance for sampling and all the regulation material. So in the event that you get a poor cube result, it very rarely means that it's representative of the concrete that's in situ. So we're, we're building a problem, spending money, and not actually identifying what the strength of the concrete is in situ. 
But as this prescriptive approach gradually changes, Tim has been able to suggest different mixers to owners. One of these is called Earth Friendly Concrete, or EFC, and was formulated by an Australian company called Wagner's. Here is Stuart Norman from Kelpray. While Wentworth House is more of a technical advice arm of the business, Kelpray is a pure contractor. We first started conversations with, with Wagner's early late 2019, where we were notified by, by our supply chain that uh, there was a new material in town and um, testing works were, were underway and would we be keen to come and, come and observe it, which we were. Um, and we went one stage further um, in the January of 2020 that we, we look to utilise the, the, the product for an anchor pile on a project over at uh, Nova East for developer uh, Landsec. So it came to our attention. The, the main aspects that we were interested in at that time were the extremely low embodied carbon compared to a, a traditional OPC-based mix that, that we would use. EFC uses no ordinary Portland cement. Instead, it uses a geopolymer binder system made up from the chemical activation of two industrial waste byproducts, blast furnace slag, which is waste from iron production, and fly ash, a waste material from coal-fired power generation. Nova East is a development around London, Victoria. While it might seem admirable that a private company is willing to put an experimental pile into its project, even considering the environmental benefits, here's Tim. Realistically, it's not an experiment. We're applying the test data we've got and the German approval in UK. The view that this is a radical new material is, is a little bit odd, strange to us. Uh, you know, the, the new material on the block is port cement. The old material is alkaline activated posilates. But there's, there's a, you know, everyone's, obviously everyone's concerned about durability in concrete. And there've been examples with calcium chloride accelerators and high aluminum cement. So you can understand that concern and that reluctance to look at the new. But the, the appetite to get involved, particularly from the client, has been very, very good. Unsurprisingly, considering the increasingly ambitious net zero targets that the country is pivoting towards, and the desire not only to do the right thing, but to make sure that your asset is compliant and saleable in the new environment. But what about the concrete itself? This is a material story. It subsequently transpires that there are additional benefits which we see as, as the material has been tested and as we've read more about it come, to, come into play. The EFC component has been researched by Wagner's over 10, 10 years. They've, they've invested substantial sums in the development of the product. And it consists of a number of uh, activator components that react with the pulverised fuel ash and the ground granulated blast furnace slag to form the, the binder material. So historically in concrete we've been allowed to replace some of the cement with one of these materials, uh, but it still needed a minimum of 5% of Portland cement to, to activate it. And the EFC material does that activation and forms slightly different reaction products. So the work by Wagner's to develop a stable, usable material with test data is really what they have brought to the party. In parallel, there's been UK work in development of a, a publicly accessible standard, a precursor to a British standard for alkali activated cementition materials. Uh, this is PAS 8820. Uh, and, and the work we've been doing is to see how we can align the use of EFC with the requirements of PAS 8820. 
A PAS is a publicly available specification. It's a document to fast track a description of best practice for a product, service, or a process that is produced in response to industry need. It invites industry response and may, at the end of two years, either be withdrawn or it might mature into a full British standard. PAS 8820 fills a gap and hopes to encourage the use of this technology. It helps users assess performance and requirements for such concrete mixes. A link to the PAS is included in our show notes. But does geopolymer concrete differ from OPC? There's some quite interesting differences. Fundamentally, we believe that the relationships for design in Eurocode 2 apply to this material. Eurocode 2, design of concrete structures. However, the, the benefits associated with the material are that it generates very little heat whilst it reacts. So for a typical metre-thick lump of concrete on all the important cement, we'd be looking at the stresses and strains associated with making it hot and as a, from the reaction process and then cooling down are significant. And we'd expect to see a temperature rise of some 50 degrees centigrade in the middle of a lump of concrete that size. With the EFC, we're seeing a fraction of that temperature gain, which means that the reinforcement that goes in to deal with that is much re reduced. We're also seeing that the long-term drying shrinkage of the material is reduced because of the reduction of the, water, the free water in the mix, primarily. And that gives us benefits when we look at ground-bearing slabs. Bending performance is also improved. The material also has a higher flexural strength uh, than the codes allow for in EC2. So when we combine these, we've actually been looking at the redesign of a large ground-bearing slab where we've been able to make it thinner and remove the reinforcement because it hasn't got because the higher flexural strength. And we've taken out a huge amount of carbon, both because of the reinforcement and because of the use of the EFC. So it's a big collateral win there. Third benefit is we can go for larger bays because the shrinkage is less. And we hope to see that project on site early next year. The, the key influence of the, of the larger bays there is that it allows for a, a shorter overall construction programme. Less joints, less things to go wrong. Yeah. Another principal difference is that the material cures from the inside out of the element, rather than the outside in. And it is important to make sure that the curing process takes place in that order, or there is an impact on the strength and durability of the concrete. Stuart and Tim are working on raising awareness of this material in the industry, and they have just won a contract for the first permanent works using EFC. The job at Victoria was temporary enabling works. The project is at Canada Water in the Docklands area of South East London. So Canada Water is a project for, for British land with main engineer, client's engineer, AKT2. So that's really looking at elements, structural elements that are primarily compression driven to start off with. Um, and even better if they're temporary works elements rather than permanent works elements. So our history to date has been through primarily through temporary works elements as designed and specified by, by Wentworth House Partnership. And we've, we've understood a lot of, about earth-friendly concrete, how to place it, um, how, how it's best mix, mixed, the open life of, of the material, for example, and, and how it cures. So we've, we've learned a lot. The difference at Canada Water is it's the first time that we have proposed and are using the material for, for permanent works use. That's based on a low risk application, starting off with, with permanent works bearing piles and then more laterally looking at pile caps and a ground bearing slab. 
Um, so we're starting literally from the ground upwards, as you might expect, Alex, but it's um, really associated with, with a risk-based based approach. And assessing the performance? That comes back to our friend, the performance-based requirement. So we have a specification for mixes that says, we want concrete that will be this strength at this age and have the following chemical resistances. That specification has been enhanced by the piling requirements for workability and, and place of you know, active life on site. And so we've managed to get to a place where we have an agreed set of tests we're doing, which is broadening everyone's knowledge of how the material works. So I think we're in a strong place there. So removing OPC from our concrete, what is stopping us adopting it more widely? I, th I think the only current barriers to EFC being taken up to become a more widely accepted material is one, obviously, awareness and knowledge, particularly in regard to uh, long-term durability. The other barrier would be the reluctance of the, of the construction industry to, to do things differently and to, to accept change. And, and the third element, which at the moment we, we see as a short-term restriction, is, is really the, the, the cost element. We're always asked about the cost, what's the additional cost? And, and people are expecting innovation to cost, to cost more, but they would, obviously we'd all like it to cost less. At the moment, the, the cost of the material is, is slightly more than uh, a normal traditional OPC-based mix, but that's because it's um, a relatively untried and tested and, and novel kind of material uh, in terms of permanent works use. The wider the use, the more the uptake, the lower the, the lower the cost of the material will become. I think we've also got to be aware that one single material is not going to solve all the problems. What we're looking for is, is, is a, a range of these materials. It, it needn't be a branded product. Portland Cement is made by a number of different people. So what we're looking for is a step change in how production of concrete is, is considered and whether we need these high carbon binders in there. There are other products on the market. Stuart and Tim went with EFC owing to its maturity. But we think that the world would be a better place if we have five or six different sources of this type of material. Ultimately, I think we, the, the constituent materials are waste products from high carbon industries. We should be looking at what volcanic ash we can go after in terms of naturally occurring materials, albeit ones that are a consequence of lots of carbon dioxide being emitted, but we can't control that carbon dioxide. So volcanic ashes, I think, are going to be a place to go looking for alternative sources of activatable material. But the technology is very much here, and the materials are available for use. It's heartening that some projects are trialling these climate-friendly concrete mixes. But when it comes to mega-projects, things are not so easy. We have heard about the developments in London, but what about the largest infrastructure project in Europe? What about High Speed 2? Asia's doing very clear that they, they want to innovate and that they want to produce, to deliver that innovation and they want to, to drive down the carbon embedded, and that's the high-level aspiration. Uh, the challenge is in unlocking that aspiration and enabling supply chain innovation to be adopted by the individual projects that make up these giant projects. A similar complaint was raised by Lord Anthony Sinjin in episode 82, securing the Shugborough Tunnel, that the UK in particular needs to unshackle and embrace the innovation of its SMEs. Because it's one of the challenges with the, 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 these large linear projects is that the approval cycle, whether it be of 
a material or design or go through so many levels of assurance that actually encourage conservatism because the timescale and the bureaucracy associated with getting that approval means that there's so many opportunities for something to be rejected that as a proposer you have to go with the conservative or accept that it's going to take an enormously long time and amount of effort to get that change proposal through. Yeah. And then the kickback we've had on a number of tenders or yeah, it's a great idea, but not on my job. Because everyone's aware that, that risk associated with the, these large schemes stifles innovation. And I think that's a good point there, Tim. But, but also, it's, it's really kind of a, a change of mindset that we're after in terms of, you know, why, why, why shall I use this material rather than why shouldn't I use this material? Let's give me the reasons why I can't use this material and work at it from an engineering perspective based on based on hard data and, and facts. One of the opportunities within the, within projects such as High Speed 2, is, as Tim says, is that they do have you know a significant funding stream for, for new innovations and we're looking to tap into that funding stream for, for, for other trials and testing so that perhaps maybe the likes of EFC and other uh, low carbon concretes won't necessarily be adopted on the High Speed 2 rail, but by the end of the High Speed 2 rail project, they, these new types of materials, if you want to call them that, will be ready to go for, for future government funded projects as well as privately funded projects. And with major projects having all this power, this ability to make an immense impact on the world, and all that power being fundamentally in the hands of engineers. And I've got just one question for all of you. What are you going to do? Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher, my co-host was Rian Owen, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own solid, sustainable foundation is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Kelpbray and the Wentworth House Partnership. Thanks for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. <laughs>